On April 26, 1895, in New York City, Mari Barberi and her mother confronted Barberi's lover, Domenico Cataldo, asking him yet again to fulfil his promise of marriage to Barberi. The problem was that Cataldo could not marry Barberi, as he already had a wife back in Italy. He explained this to Barberi and then left for the pub. Barberi then took a razor from the dresser, walked over to the pub, where she found Cataldo playing cards with friends. Without a word, she walked up behind him and cut a slit across his throat so deep that the coroner's physician said it went all the way to the spinal column. Once arrested, Barberi openly confessed to everything, giving the impression that she felt her actions were entirely justified. And it would seem that, for the most part, the public agreed with her. Despite this, because of Barberi's confession, the jury had no real choice but to convict, making her the first woman to be sentenced to death in the electric chair. However, the groundswell of public support resulted in a successful appeal and a second trial in which the defence argued that Barberi was in fact epileptic and mentally ill, thereby blaming her actions on her newly discovered mental condition. According to the New York Times, when the jury announced the verdict of not guilty, most of those in the court looked pleased. One man started to cheer when an attendant grabbed him by the shoulders and he changed his mind. And today that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to consider women and murder in the United States in the 19th and 20th centuries. Hello and welcome to the 18th episode of American History 2. I'm Dr. Mark McClay and I'm joined as always by my co-host Dr. Malcolm Craig um, and we are now back at our high-tech studio uh, in Edinburgh having eloped to Glasgow. Uh, what was that, about a month ago now Malcolm? Yeah, about, a, about a month ago, I'm not sure about the elopement part of it. Yeah, or the high-tech studio part. And just before we get into the podcast and introduce our guest today, uh, we should probably mention that if you want to understand a wee bit more about the context of the time we're talking about, the late 19th and early 20th century... Um, you, we already have a couple of podcasts, the fifth episode on the Gilded Age and the seventh episode which looks at our darling Teddy Roosevelt. And so if you want any more background on the period, because we're not really going to have much time to get into that today, then those podcasts are there. Uh, but without further ado, Malcolm, would you like to introduce our guest? Yes, I'm delighted to say today we're joined by Ryan Sutton, another great guest from the University of Edinburgh's PhD community. So welcome, Ryan. And would you be able to tell us a little bit more about your own academic background and the current research that you're going to be talking to us about today? Yeah, sure. Hi, guys. And thank you for inviting me to come along. It's always good to have someone interested in what you're devoting three plus years of your life to. <laughs> yeah. So that's Try nice. Try five. Sure. Yeah, Unlucky. yeah. <laughs> So I did my undergrad at Duke University, where I majored in history and English, and then I came to the University of Edinburgh to do my master's in gender history, and then I got the opportunity to come back to Edinburgh again to start the PhD, and I'm now in my second year. My current research looks at the cultural and legal construction of women indicted for murder and manslaughter in New York City and London from 1865 to 1914. Uh, the reasons that I'm looking at those years is because I think it's a very interesting time when you consider the shifting murder rates in both cities, and also it's bookended by war. So you've got the Civil War up to 1865, and then the start of World War I in 1914, because you don't really want to do crime studies in war years, because it can mess with the data. I was just going to say, so you've chosen to do a topic looking at crime and murder, and bookend it with wars. Yeah. <laughs> So, so, so it's kind of a very, very kind of happy, go lucky sort of research time that you well, have yeah, then in the archives. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I do, I do very much have a lot of lighthearted moments yeah. <laughs> in, in the archive. It's really great. 
Uh, and basically looking at this research is to kind of look at how the courts represented the murderess or how they treated the murderess, and then how she was represented by the press, how the public reacted to that representation, and then also how the murderess kind of constructed herself in terms of her testimony and if she gave interviews to the press, that sort of thing, to see how all of these groups sort of interacted with each other to create the image of the murderess in the 19th and 20th century. Cool. Uh, and I should also say at this point, if you ever want to see some of these happy-go-lucky anecdotes, they're actually quite funny. Uh, Ryan often posts on a Twitter account. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it just at Ryan Sutton, Ryan with an I? Yes. Yes, so <laughs> at Ryan Sutton, uh, you will see some of uh, the more... Fun- I'm trying to think of the word to sum it up best. I have a lot of trouble coming up with the right words to yeah. say how I'm enjoying my research. Yeah. <laughs> Engaging anecdotes is maybe Engaging a kind of... You know, might yeah. be that's that's yeah. sufficiently vague. Yes, yeah, but yeah. We'll, we'll, let, we'll let listeners go on and check mm-hmm. it out anyway. So if we're, we're thinking about murder in the United States, I think from Europe, from a European perspective anyway, America has this image currently of being a more violent country um, than, than uh, most kind of... Uh, westernized countries um in europe and a lot of this a lot of people over here think boil that down to all it's just because they've got guns um and we'll maybe come on to the reasons why later um but i think it was randolph roth the historian mentioned that the 19th century america has a homicide problem so what does he mean by this well it's not just the 19th century pretty much from the colonial era America not just has an image of having a homicide problem but does actually have a homicide problem like looking at the numbers it's always higher than any other European country apart from Russia Russia's a bit of an anomaly so you can't really factor that in but America for some reason is just much 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 more violent I mean I think pretty much from the middle ages down to 1950 Europe experiences a downward trend in crime Whereas America has a very fluctuating murder rate, but even at its lowest points, it's still significantly higher than Europe. And so just you've just mentioned two different words there, so could you quickly tell our listeners what the difference between homicide and murder is, yeah, for those that might not be familiar with it? Right. I mean, generally, I use the words interchangeably, but okay. if you're going to look at very strict definitions of it, then homicide includes both murder and manslaughter, whereas murder is more premeditated crimes and manslaughter is a bit more crime of passion, accidental kind of things. You don't need to have criminal, like the criminal mind, like mm-hmm. the, the evil thought. You just need to do the action. So there is a difference between murder and manslaughter, but generally, especially murder and homicide, they get used But for this podcast, yeah, nobody yeah. should take a difference. Yeah. Cool. So, I mean, if we're thinking about kind of murder or, and manslaughter, perhaps, uh, as specific crimes, I mean, is there anywhere we can look and kind of definitely identify trends that are going to help us understand what's going on here. Yeah, it's it's hard to pin down a point where you could say that you'll definitely find something that gives an answer to the entire issue, but I do think that if you're going to highlight a time, it's probably the 1850 to 1950 range, because um, that's kind of when Europe sees its most dramatic and consistent decline. So, for example, in London, in the time period I'm looking at, the murder rate hovers around 1 per 100,000, which is really low. Whereas in America, it fluctuates ridiculously to the point that in the 1870s, the murder rate is about 20 per 100,000, which is close to what it was in England in the Middle Ages. So America's got some sort of medieval thing going on (laughs) at that time. And then it drops down to 5 per 100,000 in 1890, and then it starts to climb back up again, heading towards World War I. So even at its lowest rate, it's still five times higher than what you're seeing in London. So it's 
very, very, very violent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't like those odds. 20 per 100,000. No, it's really not good. No, no, not so much. So, I mean, what are the reasons for this? I mean, like, as you've sort of hinted at, Europe has, you know, the murder rates in Europe really begin to drop during the 19th century from the available evidence that, that we have. I mean, has anybody actually came up with an explanation for this as to why America seems more violent than Europe at this point? Uh, so in terms of why it's dropping in Europe so much, there are some suggestions that have been put forward. And one of the ones that's very popular, but I don't think is very convincing, is the idea of the civilizing process, which was an idea put forward by a sociologist named Norbert Elias. I think his book was published in 1937. And he isn't talking about crime. He's just talking about the idea that over time, people have become more civilized. And he's talking about small things like being more polite to people and, you know, eating with a fork instead of with your hands, <laughs> that sort of thing. And criminologists and crime historians have looked at this and said, well, if we're being more polite in other ways, maybe we're also less likely to, you know, murder your neighbor because you're focused on being polite. And I just don't think this really works because if that were the case, it would just, the murder rate would just be going down, 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 down. And this is just implying that Americans are less civilized than the rest of, you know, the first world, which... Yeah. I mean, maybe it's true, but I'd like to think that it's not. <laughs> and it also doesn't account for how there are fluctuations in the murder rate. Does that mean some years were more civilized than other years? It just doesn't really make that much sense. Another argument is just that we've gotten better at treating people who have been wounded in a way that could lead to them dying and so murder. So because we've got better medical treatment, people survive. So maybe we're not any less violent than we were in the Middle Ages. We're just better at saving people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, and is there something to be said for in London, and specifically, you have you know Peel and his introduction of a, an actual centralized policing system. Mm. Does that input into thing you know, actually having a police force dealing yeah. with crime? Does that does that impact on it? The police force definitely seems to be uh, a factor, especially since some of the early theories about crime kind of thought that moving into the urban environment would be much more dangerous, and there'd be a much higher murder rate there. But actually, looking at past numbers as we've become more urbanized, the murder rate has dropped compared to in the Middle Ages when everything was much more rural. As we move towards the cities, it's becoming safer, which is the exact opposite of what people thought. And it does seem to be that introducing a policing system maybe makes people, in some situations, it's just more order. Things don't get out of hand as easily. And also it's the fact that, you know, there's better centralized governments that can control this sort of thing. So the murder rate might drop for that reason. And then another one is like tying into the whole urbanization is the idea of industrialization and people having more structure to their lives and having a place that they need to be. So if you've got to be in the factory or in some sort of white collar job at like 6 or 7 a.m., you're not going to spend the whole night, well, you shouldn't spend the whole <laughs> night out drinking, which means you're less likely to get into a bar fight, which means, once again, you're less likely to kill your neighbor. Yeah, I mean, I think that's quite interesting, the, the, the fact that you're saying that cities meant a decline in the murder rate like I think when people think of murder they think of you know like New York in the 1970s and 80s and you know just generally kind of the the urban landscape is being where a lot of murder takes place whereas it's actually the opposite in this case it's one of the great reducing factors that's quite interesting yeah um, Malcolm I think you said you had yeah, I mean, I'm kind of. We opened kind of the discussion with the the, the Roth's homicide problem for the United States. I think we should probably kind of like start to kind of focus a little more on the on the US. So, with the idea of the homicide problem, what are the explanations for this? I mean, there's you know, as as you pointed out in kind of like your kind of notes for the 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 podcast, there's various ideas tossed around immigration, a disparate and hard to control criminal justice system, access to firearms, codes of honor, racial tensions. 
are any of these a or the definitive explanation or as is more common with history it's a bit more complex than that yeah I, I would definitely say that it's a bit more complex than that and there are definitely people that champion like no this is the one reason this is why this is happening this way and others that say you there's no possible way to attribute it to one factor i think a really popular one that people like to point out is the issue of immigration in the u.s so the idea that people moving to a new country or a new city or something, they don't have the same strong attachments to their society that they did if it was, you know, the place where their family had been for generations. So because you feel less attached, you're less concerned about the violence you do to that area and to the people in that area. It's also likely that you have less family or fewer family connections there. Is that sort of, was that one of the reasons, if I remember correctly, that's sort of used to explain why the West was initially so violent and the American West, the idea that it was just all these young single men yeah. were out there passing through most towns and that's where the violent, and this is the really simplified version is, and the women and children arrived and all of a sudden the crime dropped, um, if I remember one history textbook. Uh, but yeah, no, it's quite, it's quite interesting, that idea of immigration as well. Yeah, that is definitely an explanation for why the West is considered to be so violent and also just immigration in general, this idea that it's a whole bunch of young men. Mm -hmm. And statistically, even today, young men are more likely to commit crime and murder than an older man or a woman of any age. So whenever you get a big group of young men together, the murder rate does tend to jump up. Um, not blaming you or anything. No, I, but, yeah. I turned 30 in the weekend. I'm no longer responsible for this. <laughs> As a 41-year-old man, I like to think I'm not going to commit murder anytime <laughs> soon. Well, that's good. That's reassuring to hear. I'm glad. Uh, so it also tied in with the idea of the West is the idea of the, the US having a weaker centralized government, especially out in the West. Like, you know, government hasn't really taken hold in any sort of way. There isn't really a policing system out there. The Northeast actually probably has the lowest crime rate back then and now the in the south and the west it was much higher and this had a lot to do with less government control but also less respect for government authorities and for the policing and also this sense of honor in the south that if someone if you had a problem with someone it was your responsibility as a man to handle that on your own bringing in the authorities just looked weak so you have a lot of dueling issues and that was that what the was the historian roger lane that sort of puts forward this code of honor thing and he's talking about how that ties into slavery as well which is he argues is one of the main reasons that america still is a more violent country because he says a lot of it goes back to slavery and this code of honor and while people think of the west as a violent area of the south of the america it's all about actually it's the south um and does that not, uh, I've read some stuff recently about how that explains a lot, potentially to do with America's gun culture. Mm -hmm. At the moment, the history of going armed, particularly in the South because of fear of slave insurrections and then into the Reconstruction period and all that kind of thing, this being being armed and maintaining your kind of constitutional rights to, to bear arms is part of, of that. I'm not, I'm not sure how, I'm not an expert in that area, so I would leave it to someone who is. Well, the South definitely isn't my area of specialty, but based on the readings I've done and from what I can understand, the South is definitely the most violent area in the U.S. then and now, really. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it does have to do with, yeah, the code of honor. And then you have in 1850, they start mass manufacturing the pistol. So that's a lot easier to, you know, conceal carry kind of thing. Yeah. And also, yeah, this the idea like one of the reasons for a lot of the high crime and high murder does have to do with the racial tensions, which is a very unique American phenomenon. And it kind of runs both ways, especially in the 19th century, with violence towards African Americans, especially in things like lynching. But then Roger Lane also puts forward the argument that it's kind of caused a perpetuating problem in the sense that 
he also talks a lot about the immigration issue and the Italians and the Irish sort of importing violence from the countries that they came from, but they eventually get worked into the system and so they get attached and they get to move ahead, move up the social ladder, so they calm down, whereas African Americans will try to do that, but a lot of times get knocked back. So they end up living in, like, stuck living in sort of inner city areas where there's a higher crime rate, and that just kind of feeds into this whole violent society and the risk of the murder rate going up. So it just causes a knock-on effect that's still being felt today. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned at the start of your research that it takes a comparator... The, at the start, sorry, you mentioned that, you know, you take a comparative look at women and murder. So I think it's maybe best that we focus the rest of the discussion on that. So if we look at women in New York at the turn of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, how can this way help us to better understand this Ameri- this high American homicide rate? Well, I think... I think a lot of the the research in this field is moving towards the idea of doing things through a comparative lens because it, it's really hard to answer the question if you look at America in isolation, especially if we're saying that America is somehow different from every other European country. It makes sense to then compare it against a European country. And I think the best way to do this is to sort of look at more like smaller, minute case studies and then eventually add them all together. So things like Lane... It's a really, and Roth as well, like they're very good books, but they cover a vast amount of time. And I think it just overgeneralizes what's happening. And sort of connected to this is the idea that we really shouldn't think about murder as a single category and just kind of say, let's talk about murder. It should be, well, okay, what do you mean when you say this is the murder rate? What's actually happening there? So, I mean, so that's an interesting point. And we touched on it very briefly at the start. So, how do you break down this kind of like category of murder? into kind of more discrete kind of components that you can then analyze. Right. Well, I mean, like we said, there's there's the legal distinction between murder and manslaughter, with murder being premeditated and manslaughter usually not premeditated. Mm. And then in the U.S. that gets broken down even further into degrees of murder and degrees of manslaughter. But if we take murder out of the idea of being a legal construct and think of it as a cultural construct, there's a lot more going on there. I mean... In the cultural and like the public conscious, there's going to be a difference between self-defense, premeditated, drunken fight. Like it comes into what do we consider to be appropriate mitigating circumstances, and then how do those mitigating circumstances then reflect in the criminal justice system and that sort of thing. And like an example of this, which I am including because Catherine Bateson asked me to. So <laughs> shout out to Cat. Uh, in 1884, Roxalana Drews. Uh, murdered her husband up in Herkimer County, New York. So this is upstate New York. She murdered him with the help of her nephew and her daughter. The nephew was allowed to go free because he said he was threatened with death if he didn't help. But Mary very actively helped, so she got a life sentence. But Roxy was sentenced to death. And this is when the method of execution was hanging. The problem was when Roxy was executed... The rope was too long, and her neck didn't break, and instead she just slowly strangled to death. And people did not like this. This made everyone very, very, very uncomfortable. There had already been debates for a long time about whether it was okay to murder, not just, uh, not murder, whether it was okay to execute a woman, not just anyone, but women specifically. Do they have to make different laws for men and women? So having her execution go wrong really caused a lot of debate around this issue to the point that In 1889, New York became the first state to switch their method of execution from hanging to the electric chair. Now, in the meantime, there was another woman, Chiara Chignorale, who 
murdered her husband in 1886. She was walking, well, he was walking down the street, a busy, crowded street, middle of the day in New York City. She walks up behind him and shot him two times in the back. So lots of witnesses, no denying that she did this, and she got sentenced to death. But because she would have been executed before the change from hanging to electrocution went into effect, people were very uncomfortable with the idea of hanging her. So when the DA was talking about plea bargaining at the start of her trial, he said, look, I don't think, like, legally, this is definitely a murder one charge. Definitely. But given the current cultural climate and how upset people are with what happened in the Drews case, I don't think any jury will actually give me a murder one verdict, so I will let her plead down to a lesser offense. So this is a situation where the cultural climate makes the DA make a different decision about how he's going to legally approach this case. So I think situations like that, we need to look at a bit more closely instead of just saying, oh, well, that was a case that, you know, she got this sentence. Well, why did she get this sentence and how did it work out this way? Now, she refused to do the plea bargain, so they ended up doing the trial anyway. She did actually get the death sentence, but then they gave her a pardon. So, oh, okay. yeah, it worked out. The, the, can we just switch from one back to the Drews case? Is that the one with the axe? That is the one with the axe. Yeah. The, the I think it's worth taking a moment just to, for you just to describe what the actual murder was like in that case. Right. Okay. So in that particular case, Roxy, well, Roxy's daughter, Mary, somehow, I'm not sure how, managed to tie her father to a chair and they sent the youngest son out. But the nephew came over and Roxy said, like, I don't really know how to work a gun. I don't know how this works. You need to shoot him. And the nephew was like, okay. So he shot him, didn't kill him, just wounded him. And then apparently Roxy then picked up an axe. And while William Drews, her husband, was saying, Roxy, please don't do this, she went over and just took his head off with the axe and then proceeded to dismember his body into smaller bits. She and Mary burned most of the body, but for some reason decided it would be a really good idea to keep the head. They put it in a burlap sack and threw it in a river, and the head was found. Also, the son made the mistake of telling someone, you know, mommy said that daddy's gone away and he's not coming back. So that's what happened in the Roxy you know, case. I've, I've never actually heard a good story from history that involves the phrase burlap sack. <laughs> Something bad always happens when the phrase burlap sack comes into it. It's never any good. So, I mean, you, you, you kind of like hinted at kind of about murders going through kind of like, you know, trends and there's ups and downs and all that kind of thing. So would you, could you just for a moment talk a bit more about, about that in the context of your, your research? Yeah, so there is also this idea that, you know, in terms of looking at murder not as a single category, but there are trends in murders in the sense that infanticide was a much, much, much more common murder in the 19th century than it is now. And it was specifically, well, almost exclusively, a women's crime. And there was a lot of panic about it, especially in England, a little bit in America, although for some reason the American criminal justice system tend to ignore it a bit. Like, they prefer to just kind of sweep it under the rug. They didn't even count it in their stats and everything, do they, the, the infanticide cases? They, in the criminal records, they are there, but some historians who look at this will say, I'm excluding infanticide from right. my study because I don't think that it really counts. And it's true, like, I will include it in the numbers of mine, but in terms of asking further questions, I kind of think of infanticide as a special case. So I think it's important for the overall numbers, 
but not necessarily in terms of looking at the qualitative stuff because there's already been a lot of research done on that as a separate crime. And the same thing goes for abortion cases. Like in this time, if an abortion was carried out, which would have been illegal, if the mother died during it, then that would be listed as a manslaughter. Whereas today, as long as an abortion is carried out in the legal parameters in which it's allowed, if the mother dies through some medical accident, that's not a murder. Whereas Mm -hmm. in the 19th century, it would have been. So I think you can't just straight compare numbers from like, today in the 19th century and say, oh, look, the murder rate has dropped. It's like, well, yes, but that's because there's far fewer infanticides and there's, like, abortion now has legal rights rather than being, you know, the backstreet abortion style of the 19th century. Yeah. And did the, the, the tendency for everyone to wield an axe sort of end in the in the late 19th century? Because I'm sure was there not another case, like the famous case of Lizzie Borden, who, did she not also murder her husband, was it, or her... No, 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 no! It was a father and her mother-in-law, or something. She murdered with an axe as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or supposedly, yeah. The jury decided she was too feminine to do such a thing, which I'm sure we'll come on to, um, in, in a wee bit. But if we think of then as a as a gendered activity, um, of murder as a gendered activity, is this because of the type of murders that women commit, or is it because of the public reaction to those murders? Or is it a bit of both, like, what's kind of going on there? It's definitely a bit of both. I mean, murder is in many ways a very gendered activity and seen as a very gendered activity. Women are far more likely to kill um, they're called intimate homicides. So someone that they know either through blood relation or through some sort of romantic connection. So it's less likely that a woman's going to go out and kill a stranger. They're going to, you know, kill their friend or their husband mm-hmm. or their lover, that sort of thing. Uh, It's also just the idea that statistically, both as perpetrators of murder and as victims, women are statistically far lower down than men. So a woman committing a murder, it's a much more, I guess, jarring sort of rip in the social fabric. And they get a lot more attention. I think people are more horrified by a woman committing a murder, especially a murder they don't expect of a woman, uh, than they would be if a man had committed the same offence. And I think that's interesting that that's something that's still with us, you know, today, you know, in, in modern Britain, Myra Hindley, you know, one of the Moors murderers is held up as one of the greatest monsters of the post-war era, uh, despite the fact that her partner, Ian Brady, was the main, you know, committer of the, of the, of the crimes and is rightly considered pretty horrible. But Hindley's always seen as somehow more horrifying, I think, because she's, she's a woman. The same with the 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 Soham murders with, with Ian Huntley, uh, and his girlfriend Maxine Carr had nothing to do with the murders. She provided him with an alibi, but she's almost seen as complicit in all of this and as a, as this horrible monster mm. because I think there's part of that the media narrative surrounding it because she's a woman, and is yeah. somehow seen kind of you know equally despicable despite the fact she wasn't the actual murderer. It's, it's interesting how these themes still you know, filter through our kind of contemporary 20th, 21st century. Yeah, they definitely do. And you you get like, especially with Myra Hindley, that that picture of her, her mugshot, it seems like people look at it and go, look how cold and calculated Mm. she is. And there's no spark of feminine gentleness in her sort of thing. Yeah. I'm sorry. And is that the same in the 19th and early 20th century? Do you find this is a, you know, the same reactions that you've just been talking about? Yeah, I would say that it is generally the, the same reactions. And I think because women, uh, because like women committing murder was so strange and people were so surprised by it, 
it threw up other questions. They got so much press attention, and in order to have all that press attention, there'd be a lot of people writing into the press, and everyone's reading this, then they ask further questions, so it would come up with things like looking at issues of gender and what's happening with the criminal justice system and are they doing the right thing or the wrong thing. And I think looking at these cases can give a really good indication of what people thought of violence and how they reacted to it in these specific cases. So, I mean, if we, look, if we then kind of turn even more to your actual PhD project, and so you're kind of looking at the exceptionalism question and based on, to try and find an answer to it, based on comparative study of New York and London, I mean, I don't know why you chose those two tiny backwaters, but um, <laughs> and you were saying you were just you're just back from a, a research trip to New York in the last couple of weeks. Um, so, I mean, can you just maybe talk a wee bit about uh, what your what your findings are at this this stage in terms of why you picked London and New York as well as a comparative study? Well, yeah, London and New York. A lot of that was has to do with the records primarily because they have a lot of really good court records and also New York and London were major press hubs in this period. So if I'm looking for public reaction to this sort of thing and also like construction by the press, then looking at those two cities makes a lot of sense. Also, because they are such big cities and just would have been very big cultural centers of the time, it makes sense to look at them because even if they don't prove to be representative of the nation as a whole, they themselves are interesting just because of their size and what's going on there at the time. Uh, and I guess the, the point is, there's three main aims of this in terms of looking at the American exceptionalism part. And the first bit has specifically to do with the numbers, uh, looking at what makes America exceptional. And as we said before, the trend is that in this time, the murder rate in Europe and England is dropping consistently, whereas in America it's fluctuating a lot, but it's still consistently higher. And yet, according to studies that other people have done, like Mary Hartman says that in this time period in England, the number of women going to trial for murder is actually increasing. So whereas the murder rate is dropping, the number of women going to trial is going up. And then in New York, even though New York is always much, much, much more violent than London, Eric Monconen, who talks about American exceptionalism, says that there are fewer women committing murders in New York than in London. So the rate of women offenders is lower in New York than it is in London. So if this is true, that means that women are moving counter to the women are moving counter to the broader trends. So it, it's interesting to look at them. And I, I think the problem is a lot of times women get ignored in larger crime studies because of how statistically negligible they're seen to be. So I think it's important to look at them because even if they are, they're, they're still a factor that's of something that's going on here. And just the idea that they're possibly moving counter to the larger trends, I think is important to look at. Yeah, and, and just a, a very small point I wanted to pick up, you mentioned that the press has been one of your main reasons for, for choosing that. I mean, this is sort of an era, your era is just before the, the sort of rise of the tabloid and everything when murder becomes like the juicy story in terms of, I mean, I, I seem to remember like reading a, a Bill Bryson book about 1927 where he discusses the rise of the tabloid and that becoming, murder becoming the sensational story of the summer. Um, so, I mean, the thing you're looking at is, is very much not, it's... It's not quite the era yet of the sensationalised papers, but yet murder when women murder, they do tend to attract disproportionate press attention still. Yeah, yeah, they definitely do. And even if... You, I feel like everyone says, like, oh, this is the time when newspapers got sensationalised. Yeah. No, this is the time. No, this is the yeah. time. And I think they definitely were sensationalised in the 19th century. Like, people really wanted over-the-top, like, 
gruesome, every bloody detail that they could get about a crime, they wanted to hear about it. And women's cases, it was very easy for them to get that kind of press attention. And so the second and third aims of the project are to look at the way the criminal justice system was functioning and also the way the press was representing these women. And I think for both of those institutions, this time period is a key time when they're professionalizing and modernizing and becoming the institutions that we see them as today. So I think this is a good time to look at this sort of construction of the female murderess at this time. So, I mean, what is it when, when you're thinking about the questions that you're really striving to answer when thinking about the way kind of female murderers are kind of presented and, and perceived in public? Well, I mean, what are the kind of like, what's this, the questions you're really trying to answer? Here? Well, yeah, I think some of the main questions would have to be about why were some women presented as villains while others were victimized? And in what instances did the press support the criminal justice system? What times did they challenge it? And if they did challenge it, what were the reasons for challenging it? And basically just understanding how these two institutions interacted with each other and then how the public reacted to that interaction and the role that the public played in that interaction and sort of get a broader understanding of what the cultural climate was that produced American exceptionalism at this time and how they felt about it. Did they see themselves as having a really high murder rate? Did they think this was a problem or did they think it was fine? Those sorts of questions, I guess, are what I'm trying to hone in on to a certain extent. I suppose it's as well, just given the prominence of so many things in the news these days, it is a, it's, a, it's a highly topical um, topic to be looking at. Uh, my, my wonderful varied grammar or sorry vocabulary mm. there saying topical and topic um, and I suppose to delve into a wee bit further what what do you really want to know about the, the female murderers themselves in terms of the way they were presented and the way they were perceived well I think especially looking at gender and crime the main question that people dealing with this topic look at is sort of how were women treated relative to men? And it's not really one of those either or sort of answers because we can't think of men and women as a single category because other issues come into it like, you know, race, class, sexuality, and even to some extent in like very specific cases thinking about, okay, why did this person commit this murder and did the person they murder deserve it mm -hmm. sort of thing, which is a bit of a grisly way to look at it. But yeah, I think that that, that ends up coming up a it, lot. Is femininity not very important in these things as well? Yeah, it is definitely very important. I think like one of the, the terms that comes up is the idea of women being doubly deviant. So the idea that if you are a woman who has committed a murder, then, you know, you're very... If you're a woman that's committed a murder, but you can be presented as having all the characteristics that you would expect a woman to have and being sort of very gentle. And if they can present you as the victim, really, in all of this, then that's fine. Whereas if you're a woman who comes across as a bit masculine and you were being especially violent or what you were doing kind of contravenes what is expected of women, that has no sense of honor in it, I guess, sort of thing, and maybe especially like murdering a child, that's mm. not okay, that's not something women should do, well then you're transgressing not only against the law and committing the murder, but also against gendered expectations. So you're much more likely to be treated harshly by the criminal justice system. And I guess... Examples of that from the, the opening scene with Marie Barbary, she's presented as a victim because, you know, Cataldo said that he would marry her mm -hmm. and then he didn't. So people viewed her as a wronged woman who 
was right to go out there and slit his throat to the point that she hit the the spinal column, which yeah. I think is a slight overreaction. But apparently he did say to her, only a pig would marry you, which isn't very nice. Yeah. Yeah. I so, wish we'd recorded this before lunch. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah sorry. It's not, it's yeah, no, he doesn't come across as a very pleasant character in all of no, this, I must no, admit. No, no, he doesn't. So I'm, I'm really interested because this is the, the era where the, the muckrakers... Especially when we t- turn to, to into the twentieth century, the muckrakers in American journalism are coming to prominence. You know, these reporters who are trying to expose corruption, hypocrisy, hypocrisy, lying, evil doing in society and politics and business and the justice system. I mean, to what extent do this emerging group of of muckrakers and kind of crusading investigative journalists, whichever way you want to characterise them? How, to what extent do they get involved in all of this in the, in the you know the commentary and presentation of, of female murderers? Well, yeah, they like just the press in general and muckrakers specifically were definitely a key part. And I think as we've talked about it, it has to do with sales. Like they want to sell, so murder becomes like crime is a great way to sell newspapers. Murder is an even better way, and a woman committing a murder is just wow. That's that's <laughs> you set. Like you are fine. So. I think their their goal was to tell gripping stories in the simplest way possible. So with that, you kind of askew more of the details and the nuances to tell very simple stories. And this is where the idea of women being doubly deviant or not comes in, because they have stock narratives that they can tell that are easy for people to follow. And then in that, they're stock characters. And I feel like the two main stock characters for women are victim and villain. So Marie Barbary, victim, very clear. We can present her as that. And that worked great for her. She was found not guilty in the end, got to walk out of prison, and actually married within a year afterwards. So apparently someone would marry her. As a brave so, dude. Very, very <laughs> It's surprising, though. A lot of the newspaper articles are people writing into the paper saying, hey, when she's out, like, I'm, I'm available. Uh, he clearly wasn't good enough for you, but, but I'll marry you. It's like people today that, you know, date people on death row. Yeah. It's like, really? That's yeah. what you want to do? Okay. Each to their own. Yeah, exactly. And uh, on the flip side of that, in terms of looking at women who are vilified, there's Augusta Knack, who she was involved in a love triangle with William Golden Seppi and Martin Thorne. And Martin found out about William, was a little bit upset, and made... Augusta lure William to a cottage, I think, up in Queens. And then when William got there, Martin shot him and then cut him up into bits. There's a lot of dismembering people in this time. Uh, Wrapping him up in paper packages and then threw him in the East River and his body washed up at various points across the city and it became known as the case of the dismembered Dutchman, which I think is a great title. I really liked it. (laughs) (laughs) But because Augusta, like, she hadn't been physically involved in the crime, she hadn't actually done any sort of really violent act, but she betrayed two men. She betrayed William by, you know, having Martin know about him and leading him to his death. And then she betrayed Martin by testifying against him. So she did get caught with conspiracy to commit murder, and she got 15 years in prison. But people were really angry that she got 15 years in prison. They thought she deserved a lot more, because what she did wasn't right or appropriate in that sense so seen as seen as we're talking about gruesome examples of this kind of thing uh you you know mentioned in in your notes the martha place the first woman to be executed in the electric chair what was her what was her case yeah martha place i find her case very very interesting i'm especially confused by the fact that marie barbary gets away with the insanity plea but 
Place doesn't, which I really feel she should have. But Place was living with her stepdaughter, Ida Place, and there was a lot of rumor going around that she was very jealous of Ida. I'm not sure why, but she murdered her by throwing acid in her face and then strangling her. And then when her husband, William Place, came home, she tried to kill him with an axe. He managed to escape, got the police. When the police were coming back to the apartment in that time, Martha attempted to commit suicide. They came into all like the, the gas going and everything. And they managed to save her, put her on trial. And I really think that she should have met, been able to do an insanity plea. But she'd failed in her obligations as a wife and a mother, which as a woman are the two things that you really, really can't do. Like William was not violent towards her. If he had been, people would have probably been much more willing to say, okay, well, fair enough. We understand why you did that. But especially killing your teenage stepdaughter because you're jealous, that's, that's not considered okay. So despite the fact that for decades people have been talking about, is it okay to kill women? Ah, we really don't like this idea. Like the death penalty is not okay. They had very little problem killing Martha Place. And it didn't help that she was not the most attractive woman. They described her as looking like a rat. And this is the time when there was actually, you know, quote unquote, science behind the idea that criminals looked like criminals. So because she wasn't very attractive and she had failed in, you know, gendered expectations, it was pretty easy to. That flip sounds the like switch, some advanced science. A yeah. criminal looks like a criminal. Yeah. <laughs> They're very, like. People believed in this studies. stuff at the time, yeah. though. They were. Yeah, quite into all this. Yeah. Okay. I mean, um, to come back then, I mean, I know I've already touched on it, but come back to the kind of role of the press as we sort of move to the, the end of this. Um, it's it's quite interesting. I mean, like you, you said, I said, the press generally presented you as black or white, uh, as in you were either, say, you know, you were sinned against or you were the, the sinner, uh, very quite um, starkly. And... You know, I just I, I watched in preparation for this. Well, not in preparation. It's just that coincidentally, I watched the Thin Blue Line by Errol Morris last night, and it's another example of you know someone who was wrongfully you know accused, but one of the reasons being the papers had made it made it very clear who they thought was the killer in that. And um, how much of the how much of a role did the press play in actually? Like, do they? Is it quite clear that they influence the verdicts, or is it a case of? sort of chicken and egg it's hard to tell what's what's going on i would think to some extent it's definitely hard to tell what's going on exactly but at the same time especially in cases where people then after the trial wrote letters to the governor or to the parole board saying you know we feel that this woman does not deserve this the only way they could really know about that is through the press so i think especially in terms of the court of public opinion the press had a very 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 strong role in terms of actual verdicts, I mean, it's the same thing today. Like, juries are the ones that produce the verdict. And it's almost impossible to get a jury that has heard nothing about the case before they, you know, rock up to do their jury duty. So I think in that sense, we have to think that the press was having some sort of an influence on the way these cases worked. But it's interesting because at the same time as having an influence, they were very critical of the criminal justice system. So they sort of created the problem and then complained about the problem later. Which, there are some examples of this, like there's the Nan Patterson case in 1904. She was a very, very pretty chorus girl, and she was dating a married man named Caesar Young. And they were actually, they were in a handsome cab on the way to a boat that his wife was on. He was going on a cruise with his wife. 
I don't know why you bring your girlfriend in the hansom cab to meet your wife. I think that's pretty much not cool. But while that was going on, they're in the cab, just the two of them. A shot rings out. Stop the cab, open it up, and he's got a bullet hole in his stomach. And Nan Patterson claimed that it was a suicide, but the medical examination showed that the angle of the gun was not consistent with suicide. Plus, the gun was found in Caesar's pocket, so it seems highly unlikely that he would shoot himself in the stomach. And then, I'm just going to put that back where it was, and we're all good. (laughs) So, when the press is talking about her in court, they call her the pretty young actress, and they talk about how she was visibly affected by what was happening and how she would shrink like shrink back in her seat and shudder in horror when they presented her with really gruesome evidence but then when the jury two juries failed to reach a verdict they were like oh this is ridiculous the only reason why they let her go is because she's pretty like well yeah but you spent the whole time discussing how she she's so horrified by violence that she can't even face it in the courtroom i mean what is anyone going to think about this woman and then on top of that, there's the case of Grace Swales. She shot her common-law husband, Leon Galloway, in the back in 1902. The newspapers claim there were 2,000 witnesses. I think that's a bit of a high-ended estimate. But 2,000, did you say? Yeah, 2,000 people <laughs> saw this. Yeah, And the, the newspapers said that it is up to the jury to determine if the oft-repeated assertion is true that a woman of physical attractiveness cannot be convicted of murder in the first degree in the city of New York. So there's this idea, if you're pretty, you're going to get away with it, it's fine. There's also a, there was a murder in New Jersey where they said, oh, if she'd been smart enough to commit her murder in New York, she would have gotten away with it. Because everyone knows in New York, if you're pretty, you're fine. You don't need to worry about it. And... There was uh, an article printed about this, which had this great quote that said, So long as nature gives one woman slayer a complexion like flowers, eyes that can speak, lips that pout, and a smile to ravish, and hands another woman slayer a complexion like a khaki jacket and a set of features like those of a rocking horse, there can be no equality of justice in jury trials. I think that's maybe a good note to end on. Uh, That's, yeah. Quite, quite the description. Yeah. <laughs> they were specifically talking about Martha Place there as well. So, looked yeah. like a rat and had features like a rocking horse. That's great. Yeah. And in six years of knowing him, I've, I've rarely seen Malcolm speechless. But <laughs> I'm trying to find words. It's a, yep. Yeah. Let's let's mark this down as a red letter day. I think. I mean, you're you're right. I think that's a, a useful place to end. I think that's been a fantastic exploration of the topic. And one thing I'd certainly be once you've completed your thesis and you completed the research to come back and talk about to see what answers you've come up with about these questions about exceptionalism and about the comparison between London and New York and, and, and murder and all that kind of thing. It'd be fascinating to hear your, your final conclusions yeah, about all of that. Great. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you very I, much. I, I think we've both learned one really important thing. Women have committed a lot of murders in a lot of <laughs> gruesome ways. And it's not generally what something that was forefront in my head before today. Although so. I think if history tells us anything, men have probably committed an awful lot more murders. Yes, but not us because we're old enough. Yep. Um, right, okay. <laughs> so we'll leave it there. Thanks again, Ryan. Thanks again, Malcolm. Uh, and thanks again to you, listener. As I said in the last podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you jump on and give us a nice rating on the iTunes. Um, and until about four weeks exactly from now, Uh, when we'll be releasing our podcast called The President and the King and that's all I'm going to tell you for now thanks again bye bye goodbye bye